This past year saw a resurgence in conversations about race and power in the West, particularly here in the United States, where we as Armenian Americans were reminded that we live in a country founded on genocide, forced assimilation, and slavery, while America's ally, the Republic of Turkey, has nearly identical foundations. Upon witnessing the continuation of the genocide in Artsakh this past fall, Armenians are especially reflectant about our place in the world. We've witnessed the confusing conversations about where Armenians fit in the scope of global identity, whether it's with family at the dinner table or on Twitter and other social media. Today, we're here to give you all the context you need to address these questions. Throughout history, Armenians have always been the bridge connecting different regions. Because of where Armenia is located, it is a part of the Middle East, Europe, Caucasus, and West Asia. This places Armenians into multiple categories, which are not mutually exclusive, but nonetheless can make it confusing when describing our identity to others, especially when 72% of Armenians in the world are diasporans, already struggling to discern what it means to be Armenian ourselves. Diasporans in exile who have become refugees generation after generation, fleeing genocide and persecution. Armenians also vary in appearance, many with darker complexion who could never be quote-unquote white-passing, and many with lighter features who certainly could be. This is exemplified in the entrance of some Armenians into the U.S. at the turn of the 19th century, who had to prove their quote-unquote legal whiteness to enter the country, while others were discriminated against for their darker complexion, being called slurs like the N-words of the Central Valley. I'm Krista Marina Apardian. And I'm Haig Minasian. And you're listening to High Tube Talks, the official podcast of the AYF West. Today's episode, Reflecting on Armenian Racial Identity with Kohar Avakian. A couple of Armenians talking in the world. Kohar Avakian is a black, Nipmuc, and Armenian scholar from Western Massachusetts and a PhD student in Yale University's American Studies program. She graduated from Dartmouth College in 2017 with a BA in History, modified with Native American Studies, where she completed a senior thesis on the history of legal whiteness in the U.S., focusing on the case of study of Armenian refugees in Worcester, the first Armenian community in America, on the ancestral land of the Nipmuc Nation, her tribe. For her doctoral research, Quad is interested in situating the history of Armenian racial formation with a wider framework of settler colonialism, slavery, and Asian exclusion. While she primarily draws from historical photography and oral history research methods, she also seeks to interrogate archival silences and create space for alternative modes of knowing and being in the face of such absences. Her work strives to explore the layered histories of her Armenian, Black, and Native ancestors in order to illuminate the intersections of race, indigeneity, and genocide in the United States and beyond. Welcome, Kohar. Hello, Kohar. Happy to have you here. Hello. Happy to be here. So, Kohar Avakian, uh, on paper, very Armenian name, right? If uh, no one had seen you before, they're looking at the paper uh, and they knew what Armenian names were like, uh, they'd say this is a super Armenian name. However, uh, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Because it's not just Armenian, correct? Correct. <laughs> yes. So um, my name is Armenian, and it was actually made into an Armenian name or insisted upon that me and my sisters have an Armenian name by my Black and Native mother. Um, and not specifically that. I'm sure my dad also had something to do with it and my grandmother. But my mom got the name book from my um, 
Monty Husnig, actually, mm-hmm. back in the 90s. And she was the reason that we got those names. So on top of being Armenian via Lebanon, uh, mm-hmm. which is where my dad comes from, he came here in the 70s as a result of the Civil War. My mom is born and raised in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. specifically Boston, but her we have roots in Worcester, Mass as well, mm-hmm. which is where my parents met. Yeah, but my mom is Black and Native American, specifically from the Nipmuc Nation um, of Central Massachusetts. You know, Native American history, it's like looking into the future, 500 years into the future, what could happen potentially with Armenians a lot of the time. And if that's the case, like I want to be able to, I want 500 years from now for people to honor the Armenian memory or the or help revive the Armenian nation. So actually, would you be willing to give us some quick history on the Nimuk tribe of uh, Ma- Massachusetts. Uh, I'd like to hear a little bit about it before we get into the rest. Of course. So the Nipmuc Nation um, is based, we're, we're known as the freshwater people of central Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Um, and our traditional lands are central Massachusetts. So modern day Worcester, mm-hmm. which by coincidence and not by coincidence, is the first city that Armenians settled in the entire Western Hemisphere. It's true. Yeah. And the foundation of the first Armenian church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all these connections here. Mm-hmm. So our traditional lands are in central Massachusetts, but also all over what is now New England. So upper um, northern Connecticut and northern Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. But we currently mostly find ourselves in what is Massachusetts. So, you know, like many indigenous peoples across this whole continent, across the entire world, we've seen a lot of violence through genocide, forced removal. Um, But what we've also seen is sort of the overwriting of that history to be painted as this very much friendly encounter Mm-hmm. That is really a way of masking that genocidal violence that took place in central Massachusetts and all over New England. So basically, we find ourselves in central Massachusetts still, where we have lived since time immemorial. Mm-hmm. But it was a very much a sort of gradual legal process in that the encounter, first of all, a lot of us died from diseases. But I think that's often overstated because it wasn't just disease. So in addition to um, disease, there were first forced conversions. So Daniel Gukin and John Elliott are often accredited in New England for establishing what we call praying towns, which are basically just fancy words for settlements where indigenous peoples here, including my tribe, the Nipmuc Nation, specifically in what is now, for example, Natick, Massachusetts, established these praying towns for the conversion of native people, where we were forbidden from practicing our traditions, from speaking our languages. Mm-hmm. They also, this is also the time where they converted um, the Bible into Nipmuc in our, our indigenous tongue. No way. Wow. Yeah, so that exists, and it exists now at Harvard. And all a lot of our artifacts are actually still existent in Harvard and other institutions that were born out of slavery. Which is and interesting, yeah. Slave labor. Those were religious schools. Exactly. Those were, like, wow. probably the centers of conversion, too. That's interesting. Yeah. And they yeah. were, now like, founded for the Christianization of, mm-hmm. or the education of Native youth, for example. Yeah. So... 
these praying towns really not only were ways to assimilate and forcibly convert Native people in New England, but in addition to that, you had King Philip's War in 1675. It ended with the killing of King Philip, who his metacomet is his Native name. Yeah. And that was the way the English sort of said, like, now that was the end of the war. But really, it was a longer structural way of taking over the land. So my, my people, the Nitmuk people, along with a lot of Native people, were interned and sent away to Deer Island. That's an island off of Boston Harbor. Mm. You could still go there today, and they were exterminated there and no left way. to starve and die. So that's, that's what there's actually now um, every year an annual paddle there as a sort of commemoration wow. for our tribe. Mm-hmm. There's so many different connections with the structure that was embedded into the landscape. And after that, a lot of natives were sold into slavery. Mm-hmm. A lot of them were there, uh, were put into English households in Worcester. What became Worcester after, you know, the colonization of the land. Um, a lot of the colonization, colonization happened through cattle, which is an interesting thing. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't necessarily have enclosed spaces or any sort of sense of owning the land because mm-hmm. it was about taking care of the land and being with the land and being with your people. Right. And the, this is sort of, you know, the, the first time that this structure, this capital, capitalistic structure was imposed onto the landscape. Um, so the community yeah. is still around though. It's, it hasn't found a yeah. revival. I mean, obviously. Right. <laughs> So our history definitely did not end there. I can even send you like uh, I found this very useful thing on our uh, on our website by our our sachem. She put together the history because a lot of it is known through oral histories because a lot of the archives don't exist by design. They weren't they were purged as we know all too well. So a lot of our our tribe we based on many different you know conflicts whether it was the Revolutionary War or World War One or World War Two. eventually, a lot of our men would go fight. And as a result, women were left behind. And many of them ended up marrying um, freed enslaved people mm-hmm. that traveled here up north. So our Native community and as are many Indigenous communities in New England, or what is now New England, mm-hmm. in the East Coast, is also uh, very much, a mixed black and native community. I've noticed that so, before. I've I've met many black people that have a uh, Native American background. Um, right. But uh, a lot of things that Armenians can kind of like identify with there and and see and and relate to that. Um, but it also gives us a lot of hope and inspiration there. You know. Yeah. It does. It's a right. Y'all, y'all Thank are on you. The, Y'all are on the we're come up. Driving. We're driving. Yes. We're, we're living. Um, we're raised by very, very many strong women. I think like that is something that's a real thing for Hell our yeah. community. Well, when you're talking to a non-Armenian in Massachusetts, let's say you say African-American, Native American, they can kind of piece that together into what that means. However, I feel like maybe Armenian has been a little bit more difficult to explain. How would you, mm. to someone, if they're like, what is Armenia? What would be your spiel? Or how would you simplify it so that they can, you know, make a picture of it in their heads? Yeah, I think Armenians growing up in the U.S., it's crazy how that's such a common experience to tell people what you are. And they're like, what is that? Right? Everyone has you their know? little spiel, their little, like, bullet what points in that? their head or mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. 
Yeah, I would actually, it's just funny how much it has changed growing up, but I would say in Worcester, there were established Armenian connections because of that history. Right. So that helped shape that the the fact that people did know who we were. That is true. But then I was really confused growing up because I was like, how do I explain this, you know, in terms that people would understand? And my dad being from Lebanon, that also shaped, you know, how people would perceive us and perceive me. But um, I was always like, yeah, we're now I always say like an indigenous group from West Asia like that is how I have always understood myself being a black and indigenous woman here and being that my family came from or comes from, you know, what is now Turkey and then Lebanon. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that is the one term in describing Armenians because we really were. Right. We really are everywhere. So it is true. True, we're citizens of the world. For sure. <laughs> I know, and at this point, every corner, and you keep learning more and more things about where we are. Like it's so true. Ireland, yeah, Brazil. I put my last China. name in, in Facebook the other day. <laughs> apparently, there are Apardians everywhere. Yeah, we got cousins everywhere, all over. So yeah. apparently, I have to travel the world one by one and meet all of them now. And you know what? Exactly. <laughs> we're only so th- what this means for Armenians is we're only going to get more diverse. You know, we're going to have a lot more mixed Armenian families. We're going to have a lot more Armenians from all different cultures too. I mean, uh, let's say they live in South America for two, three generations. Mm-hmm. So in general, it's mm-hmm. going to be important for the Armenian community to be able to like one know who we are and know what races and these social constructs, but also be accepting of the diversity that's already here but about to come as well Mm, for sure which is why we're very excited to have you here with us today kohad um so you are currently working towards a phd in american studies at yale what inspired you to pursue that study yeah that is a great question um i would say it all started in undergrad so i went to dartmouth college um in new hampshire by, sort of by chance, and it is one, also one of those institutions that was founded for the education of Native youth. Mm-hmm. Not saying that really had too much to do with my decision, but there is a pretty strong Native community there, which was great for me. So I majored in history, modified as Native American studies, because they have like Native studies there, which is also very much informed, you know, how I see everything. Mm-hmm. And it there. I was finally able to take Native American Studies classes and um, African American Studies classes, which were, I finally, for the first time, was like, something clicked. I was like, I get it. Mm -hmm. For the first time, I could hear my history narrated back to me um, and see myself represented, and that really made a big difference. But then, you know, I definitely saw the absence in the erasure of Armenian histories or any histories of the Middle East or West Asia, they were always marginalized or completely absent in conversations. And I realized that that might be the thing. You know, whenever you have a question. And it's like a gap you, there. Like it's, Right. Yeah. A gap or a question that has no answers yet, that's usually a good indicator. So I took a class called Great American Studies, and then I took a race and ethnicity course with the same professor um, who is very much based in American studies. So I think that informs how I understand all these things intersectionally um, because I did a project my sophomore year, I think, 
um, on Armenian, like that was the first time I really like dug into it. And I feel like up to that, I didn't really know, like, you know, you learn things through AYS and you learn things through your family, through your yeah. churches, through all of our organizations. I think we are, if there's one thing we're great at. It's teaching, it's teaching history. And really we do it for ourselves because we understand the importance of preserving that history for, for us. Yeah. But there's so much. And you know, there's a lot. There's so much. Yeah, and I finally sort of dug in and I was like, this this could be a dissertation. Like from that (laughs) point, I was like, this this is already in the making. Mm -hmm. And um it all started when I just I I don't want to say discovered because it's always been there, but for the first time I encountered the the Armenian legal whiteness cases. That Mm -hmm. was the moment where I because there was such a disconnect between what I'd grown up understanding what Armenian identity was and what I was reading like a hundred years ago. Mm. And I was like, something's not really making sense. Mm-hmm. Um, it got interesting at that so, point. You're like, look at that. I was <laughs> like, something's going on here and it needs more, it mm. needs way more attention. Cause why don't we even talk about this in our, you know, when there's such a silence and a gap, I think I've always been very much interested in interrogating you know, the absence that's there by, you know, by way of all the absences that exist in, yeah, addressing you know, our history. It. Well, uh, speaking of, uh, like, the the cases, the, the law cases with the Armenians and proving their whiteness and that, um, you know, this comes from an old social study of race and color and uh, human <laughs> head sizes. And, you know, uh, hmm. like, uh, <laughs> could you give us like a very brief kind of how did this like a European study of race kind of come to where it is now over time? Would you be able to like summarize? Yeah. Yeah. There's no easy way to say that. Yeah. This country, as we know, is built on genocide Mm -hmm. and foundationally built on top of anti-black racism Mm -hmm. and the opposite or the sort of foil to that anti-blackness that is in the anti-indigeneity that is at the core of this country is the sort of, you know, reverence for whiteness and the standard and this naturalization of the white hegemony, you know, sort of structurally embedded in the surface. So in 1790, as a result of the Naturalization Act um, that was founded in that year, one had to fit into the category of free white persons With in property. order to become a naturalized yeah, yeah. U.S. citizen. Yeah. yeah, you couldn't even become a citizen if you didn't fit into that category. So by design, it was a very exclusive... That was written into the Constitution. Yeah. So this country is literally founded on exclusion. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has very much been overwritten as well, that a lot of people probably don't know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition, um, at the time, there weren't necessarily that much, that many immigrants that were coming from, say, Asia, or that weren't very obviously fitting into that category. Um, so it wasn't until the late 19th, early 20th centuries that you had what they call the racial prerequisite cases, um, which were basically you know, the the opportunity, if you want to call it that, yeah. for a petitioner to sort of appeal to a court 
and petition to naturalize on a ba- on the basis of their ability to demonstrate that they could assimilate into whiteness or that they were white. Um, and John Tehranian is an author um, who write, wrote Whitewash, America's Middle Eastern Minority. And he talks about how it came down to how well a petitioner was able, how well they were able to perform whiteness. And I often use that word perform because I think it's something that all immigrants during this time period came to do not only out of, you know, desire for citizenship, but out of necessity. And I'm saying that because I've read a lot of these cases and they're very explicitly exclusionary and they come down to this history of eugenics. So this is the same time period, as you said, of latent scientific racism, masses racial science. So that was the time period um, where they're measuring skulls, collecting mm-hmm. bodies, obviously enslaving people, treating people as less than human. Um, and that was so recent in our history. This is during Jim Crow and Asian exclusion. So some authors have even said that Armenian legal whiteness was sort of that way that they drew the line between East and West because they wanted to exclude all those that were sort of to the East because of this deep, deep racial hatred and fear of the foreign when it came to East Asians, for example, the Chinese Exclusion Act was also during that time. Mm -hmm. The early um, 20th century was also called like the Americanization movement. That's what they called it. You can look it up. It's still there. And now they say, you know, it's, it's, it's known today as being this deeply racist thing. But this is that time period when these ideologies were very much taught. This is also the period when um, indigenous people here across the country, across, you know, the whole hemisphere, were taken away and put in boarding schools and forcibly assimilated yeah. and converted. Um, so at the time, immigrants were also being put into these Americanization programs where they had to learn English. I did a lot of interviews for my um, research in undergrad mm-hmm. um, of, for example, Worcester's community, because we were that sort of first community that experienced a lot of this very deeply assimilative, uh, these very deeply assimilative processes right. where, you know, we weren't really allowed to practice our culture in public in the way that we would have been able to for example my family in Mm -hmm. lebanon Mm -hmm. you know we have these because we're so spread around the world i feel like we can view things so so relationally because we have people in many different places and that's what i've been thinking about a lot lately yeah yeah for sure these assimilation ideologies definitely have you know prompt very real and also long-term consequences um, it reminds me of Turkification, you know, like what mm-hmm. happens to Armenians in Turkey. Or I think about that all the time, especially now. Um, the most blatant connection you could do, you could think about, is you know our our Armenian siblings in Turkey that are literally in fear of their lives yeah. and yeah. not safe, just culture. practicing their cultures. Yeah. yeah, it's it's the structure. It's that's at its core. So we could kind of say that the foundation of Turkey was also racist and built on slavery and genocide. We could definitely (laughs) say that. Lots of parallels here. (laughs) Settler colonialism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Definitely. Um, It's a a, a supremacist ideology at its core. True that. Mm -hmm. 
Um, well, one of the consequences of this uh, sort of forced assimilation could be a bit of confusion about where Armenians stand on that on that uh, spectrum of whiteness, let's say, or spectrum mm. of you know whatever you want to call it. And so Armenians come in many in many beautiful different forms, and the U.S. government you know labels many groups white when, in reality, our identity is a lot more layered and complex. Um, so Kohat, I guess to ask you, sort of just straightforward. Are Armenians white? <laughs> Just give us the answer. <laughs> I'll give you the easiest answer is we will never have an answer. Mm, true ever. That. For the exact reason that it's still coming up and it has been discussed and debated for the last 100 years, it's because of the very reason that it is contested. And I think there will never be an answer for that reason. Because we do come in many different shapes and sizes, and because race, race is socially constructed, so it's not something that is biological, that it is, it's not static or concrete. Right. It doesn't just stay the same. And this is why I always repeat this on Twitter, for example. <laughs> it doesn't just stay the same for 100 years because it's informed by macro and um, micro-level processes. So both on the ground, but these big things, like, for example, what's happening abroad right now or the Armenian genocide or mass waves of immigration, which are, you know, more macro level processes. But they're always interacting at the same time and informing how people perceive us and also how we perceive ourselves. Um, so I think we could say that, yes, some Armenians, since we do come in many different shapes and sizes, some Armenians can pass as white. And I think we should acknowledge that that history of, you know, sort of being allowed entry into legal whiteness did give us an upper hand in many cases. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, I am way more interested in interrogating why it was that citizenship was exclusive in the first place. Right. You know, why aren't we questioning the structure instead of going back and forth about questions that might never have answered that's true personally. very true um with that said kohad why is the blanket statement that armenians are white potentially dangerous hmm. well, i think we're seeing that exactly right now um with what's happening in Artsakh in armenia um that whiteness is in many ways and you know i would say many broad racial categories it serves as a form of erasure it serves to conflate to flatten to sort of collapse all the different complexities all the different geopolitical complexities to simplify um yeah. it simplifies it right yeah because first of all it's not the truth and you only get the truth by living the truth in my opinion and i think we understand it because we've obviously been in the room and we've been in these spaces and we've inherited these histories so I think when people do make that statement, it's often a way of reading history back onto the present in a way that's inaccurate and just almost, it is erasure at its core, yeah. They're flawed, you know, the, the social constructs and the way they, so it's Absolutely. almost impossible to try to define ourselves with yeah. these flawed, you know, measures or whatever mm -hmm. you want to call it. It also feels like in, in some ways it minimizes uh, some degree of oppression that Armenians have faced throughout history. Right. Yeah. I was also thinking, um, I think that our racial categories as well, 
in the U.S., we are not really good at differentiating types of migration. For example, you will often hear, you'll hear them say, we're all immigrants here, which is not only, it's not only a form of erasure for indigenous people that are not immigrants who've been here since time immemorial, mm. but I think it's a way of conveniently erasing people who are forced to come here, whether by being refugees, Slaves. you know, forced forced migration and voluntary migration, those two things are often conflated here. And I think whiteness is a very convenient cover for that. When I don't think white people are really looking out for us, I'll be real. <laughs> We've actually seen that this week very, very clearly um, I mean, on Twitter yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> As an Armenian history. People nerd. were like, why are you? Why are you protesting on our country? I'm like, whoa, I have news for you. <laughs> it's our yeah. country. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but definitely the difference yeah. between immigration, refugee status, and uh, indigeneity are all relevant to that conversation for sure. Well, uh, Exactly. But every time I see the census, you know, we've all noticed that the, we get lumped into the white category. Let's say if we had to have to pick one and we always end up having to pick one, mm -hmm. there'll be a little parentheses mm -hmm. that says... North African, uh, Middle Eastern mm. also are included th in this group. Uh, but like random question, because I always thought about this. Is there like a incentive for the government to make the proportion of Americans seem more white by including more groups? Is that, <laughs> have you heard or anything? I anything feel like? like that's exactly what it is. I think it's no coincidence that the U.S. is entirely implicated in the reason we were made the people in that region, West Asia, North Africa, and um, the Middle East, whatever, you know, that's yeah. coined by the West, making us into refugees. I think the West is completely implicated, but at the same time, it lumps us in into this, you know, very broad racial category that, you know, especially post 9-11, I don't think that category stands mm -hmm. the way that it is often written. Um, and that was made very clear on 9-11 this year when so many uh, people, Swana people came forward with all of their experiences, I saw. See, Twitter teaches me every day. But there are just like so many experiences that are completely erased by that census category. Mm -hmm. And as a result, people don't prioritize us. And even in critical race you know, studies, people won't even include us in those categories in that in those conversations because we're not institutionally there um yeah. now how about the term caucasian now the caucasus mountains no? you know it it's 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 in armenia today i'm sure the word caucasus and kafkas i mean this is an old term but it was co-opted by german social science or like someone in europe to describe mm. uh, white people right what's the yeah. Is there, I mean, should Armenians call themselves Caucasian if it makes in that sense, or should they avoid using that term? What would you say, or what would you recommend? Because I think that also contributes yeah. to the confusion about the conversation right. about where Armenians fit on the spectrum of whiteness. It's like, oh, well, they're Caucasian. Oh, but they're, you know what I mean? It's almost used interchangeably with, with no, white. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, so basically a term, like right, you said, this German quote-unquote racial scientist, which is, again, a euphemism for scientific racism. Yeah. <laughs> He's a eugenicist. He's a man, he was a man that collected skulls. He picked up a Georgian skull, right? Or an right. Armenian skull. A simple skull. I think that I cannot get over, that that is sort of the, the root of all of this <laughs> racial confusion. 
a skull to name an entire people and to co-opt an entire identity. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think I can tell Armenians whether or not they can use the term Caucasian because those people do exist there today. It you know? sense, yeah. It's not like that's void of people. And if right. they, you know, identify with that region and those mountains, that word has a completely different meaning in, outside of the U.S. So it should like, be the reverse then and tell the non, like, the non-Caucasian, yeah. let's say the European, that this is this term doesn't apply to right. you or it doesn't really make sense because geographically or... Which people mm-hmm. don't know that history. So I think this year we've been trying to educate people to be like, oh, actually, you're, you're erasing a lot of the indigenous people that come from that region. But at the same time, I think it's so deeply embedded in the social fabric of this country because when you hear Caucasian, it's interchangeable with whiteness, Mm -hmm. which is interchangeable with that sort of class of power and privilege and status. And I don't think it'll be removed from that meaning for a long time from what I've seen. So I feel like Armenians could be aware of that social meaning and use that way that term as a way of educating others about us it's more important than ever now (laughs) definitely you reminded me of something interesting though you know we describe white as let's say northern european skin color but it's also referred or used as the term for applying it to the powerful to the elites or to the privileged folk but then we use the term white here and there, and it's for me, sometimes it's hard to differentiate, you know, because some white groups maybe don't get lumped or are getting lumped into the, the white privilege part of it. For me, I lived in Ireland. I'm a big Irish patriot because the Irish people were one of those groups of northern Europe that you can argue didn't have imperialism or a lot of things we criticize the rest of northern Europe for. So would we be able to describe the difference between the race white and then white as in the powerful Mm. or do you think they're just interchangeably the same thing right well i think those so actually one of my mentors matthew fried jacobson wrote this book whiteness of a different color which is basically about that earliest 20th century where those racial differences at the time the different ethnic what we think of as ethnic groups now he he sort of argued that no those were seen as racial differences back then because of their social construction. So a lot of authors have written about how the Irish and the Italians event and Jews, for example, eventually became white. But I would say in modern day, I don't really think those personally, those um, distinctions really exist because of the way power is constructed and the access to power that, you know, was conferred early on. And I think a very important distinction and why I really, it frustrates me sometimes to see Armenians get conflated into that same equation um, is because unlike Irish and Italian people, for example, um, we had to petition in order to become citizens as similar to the Chinese, the Japanese, Syrians, Mm -hmm. Indians from Asia, and of course, year to year, there were different outcomes to these cases, and Armenians were granted access, quote unquote, you know, legally or on paper. Um, but I think a big difference that shouldn't be understated is the fact that, you know, Armenian refugees, you know, this is the the generation that came from the Hamidian massacres, the generation that came 
as a result of the Armenian genocide. So that was the generation that also had to petition for whiteness, right. for access or for legal whiteness. So a lot was at stake in that in that situation. Um, yeah. But I think that the one thing that differentiates us and sort of draws those lines of privilege and power is the fact that, you know, we had to petition. But that, again, our history didn't stay static. Right. Then in the late, I always bring up in the late um, 20th century, we had that new wave or that, you know, that more recent wave of immigrants or, you know, a lot of refugees. Yeah. For example, Lebanon. from the middle, quote yeah, unquote, yeah. the Middle East, Lebanon, you know, Iran, yeah. where we settled directly after the genocide, most of us were up, uprooted once more. Mm-hmm. And you can't just understate that mass migration of people. You know, these communities got so many different immigrants, and that really enlivened a lot of the, you know, the cultural, uh, a lot of the cultural, you know, yeah. uh, centers of these communities. But additionally, that changes how people perceive us racially, uh, racially right. yeah. from the outside. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's really that's a good point because what brought us to petition for whiteness in the early 20th century was, you know, bec- being exiled and or becoming refugees. Um, you also mentioned privilege, Kohar. Can you distinguish white privilege versus the privilege that comes from being white passing? Like legal mm. treatment versus like real life treatment too. On top of it. Yeah. Oh, I would say we have a lot of conversations like this, specifically in the Native community. And I would say we have so many identical conversations in the Native Native communities that I'm part of, particularly when it comes to, like, quote-unquote, blood quantum and, you know, racial purity, mixture, all these different things. And I think in a lot of ways, these are outcomes of genocide and you know that sort of fear of losing your culture and that's the outcome of existing in a very much an assimilative framework but a lot of natives in this in the country are white passing or are are white they're mixed with white and we have a lot of those conversations and I think you know if you can pass as white and if you're red as white then you have white privilege and it's kind of as simple as that but at the same time I don't want to negate you know the real you know cultural experiences or or experiences of dispossession that Armenians are still currently going through Um, but I think it's important to acknowledge that privilege at its core but to understand that you know that will not always protect us you know dependent on where we are in the world and that race is Mm -hmm. not just it doesn't just stop with our yeah. our imaginary borders. It's a global thing. Right. So that's been actually a frustration of mine when I see people be, being like, well, insert group, they have white privilege here. I don't think it necessarily works like that. It's not as simplified as we like to make it. Right. I think it is a global thing. People are moving back and forth. Families are straddled by borders. And, you know, refugees are a thing. And I think whiteness and conversations about white privilege can often be cyclical. And we never really get to a consensus there. And I think they need to be a lot more nuanced. And I'm, I am interested in talking about white power because I think the conversation would then be 
shifted to who is making these structures that continue to uphold, you know, white privilege. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the yeah f- zoom out. Yeah, the, the, who, who's upholding the flawed system of race right. or who country. made it and whose ancestors made these structures and who was who inherited and is still inheriting that wealth. You know, I feel like when we have the conversations about privilege, especially on Twitter, I've seen it in a lot of different, um, you know, minoritized groups will go back and forth and never reach any sort of conclusion. Um, And I I feel like white people must see those conversations as a sort of scroll by, like evading that responsibility. How much more different would our conversations be if we talked more about power? Yeah. And I think we'd, We'd be talking about different things, and I'm more interested in that. Interesting. Yeah. I, I agree with that. And it's nuanced inherently, all of our experiences. It's, so the conversation naturally should be nuanced as well. One of the ways mm-hmm. I would describe uh, white privilege, though, as Armenians to you know other Armenians is if we changed our names to, you know, mm-hmm. Jack and Jerry or, you know, uh, mm-hmm. would you, st- would you know, be just seen as an American and not as as an ethnic, et cetera. You know, and mm-hmm. a lot of us did did do that in the past. I mean, uh, my entire mm. f- father's side has been in America since like 1907. They've been here for a long time, and they all now they don't speak any Armenian for the most part. They all have uh, non-Armenian names. My father's name is Tony. My grandparents are Jack and Sandra, and everyone in the family has mm. American names. And so, I mean, uh, this uh, assimilation and. Uh, and a structure of race in this country has a personally affected my family and our, our, you know, us trying to keep Armenian alive. And it was for that recent wave of immigrants that uh, revived my personal family. Right. Mm. It's different now. We're, we're lucky. Yeah. Well, let's bring up Kim K. Yeah. That's <laughs> her actually family did come during that time period. And I think, you know, that is a very clear example of what you might call white privilege or access to whiteness because you know, during that time period, the stakes were so high that access to whiteness was citizenship and ownership of, of land or ability to own land and sort of participate in, you know, the civic structure of this country. So in a way, yeah, I think definitely it's historically rooted in that Americanization period. It, so you bring up a good point there. Well, isn't, yeah. it, isn't it interesting that Kim Kardashian tends to be like the, sub- mm. the way to address this subject, at least yeah. the I way- mean. When we talk about an Armenian spiel, oftentimes she f- comes up in the conversation, even if it's not out. on my end, you know, they're like, oh, like the Kardashians. Well, that is actually yeah. going, going back to my first question, actually, about like, what would we tell a non-Armenian about Armenians? Mm-hmm. I'd be like, well, Kardashian, you know, you know her, like her, you know, mm. uh, and that would usually work because now that's someone that everyone knows in this country and they could connect. OK, what does she look like? That's Especially what if you're most, in a rush. It's just like a quick. It, what's the easiest way to do right. it? Uh, do you know? <laughs> A share? No, you don't know System of Down? No? Okay, uh, how about Kim Kardashian? Like, you, you try to, like, see if you have other options before that one, but you've already kind of talked about uh, the history of whiteness in this country specifically. Could you give us some more, like, the details of Halajian and Kartozian, like, the two big Armenian cases that fought for our right to be white in this country? Could you give us a brief description and maybe, like, how that court or the battle in court kind of went down? Yeah. So, um, in Andri Halajian took place in 1909 and, um, Armenians were deemed white by law in that case. 
actually can read directly from the newspaper in the Boston Herald that was published on December 25th, 1909, which read, Armenians have always been reckoned as Caucasians and white persons, that the outlook of their civilization has been toward Europe, that the word white has generally been used in the federal and in the state statutes, in the publications of the United States, and in classification of its inhabitants to include all persons not otherwise classified, that Armenians, listen here, as well as Syrians and Turks have been freely naturalized in this court until now, although the statutes in their respect have stood substantially unchanged since the first Congress that the world, but that the word white as used in the statutes, publications and classifications above referred to. Those meanings, those meaning has narrowed to exclude Chinese and Japanese in sub instances still includes Armenians. So wow. exactly what Gee. I said about the time period, it, it's really awful. A lot of these things are just actually they, they see didn't, what I have. They didn't know anything back then and they were so sure of themselves <laughs> making these decisions. <laughs> Oh my gosh, tell me about it. It really is, I don't even know, once you read the, 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 you know, the rhetoric of the cases, it's completely, it'll disillusion you yeah, and it'll make universe. you re realize yeah. Yeah. none of it's real. It's all, of course, very real. And it, it structured all of our experiences and how we were able, for all these different groups, how we were able to exist in this country until now, like we are still living in the shadow in this aftermath of these cases. Yeah. Um, and you can see that very clearly. Um, and I, I think, so the way these courses, these court cases were decided, you know, really kind of was dependent in the year. So Indri um, Ellis was in 1910, Syrians were deemed eligible for naturalization. Um, and in some other cases, they were not deemed eligible. And it would really depend on the sort of the year. And it shows how socially constructed and how contested these cases were at the time. It's important to view these cases relationally because at the time, a lot of Syrians and Armenians that were coming here were Christian, um, including the Syrian people that came here. Um, and I think our Christianity had everything to do with the fact that we were allowed into this country and you can see that very clearly when you look at the the relationship between, for example, Protestant missionaries that went to the Ottoman Empire to convert Armenians and eventually brought some Armenians to cities like Worcester and other, you know, industrial centers in, in what is now New England. Um, but I think it had everything to do with our ability to be to assimilate and to be sort of more palatable for white audiences. Um, and different from everything that was, you know, to the east of us. Well, so why was there a second case then with Cartosian in, what is yeah. that, the 20s or 30s? Or so, U.S. v. Cartosian was in 1925. And I, I just have to plug this incredible book that really goes into this history. Um, it's Nera Mahvule's um, Limits of Whiteness. Let me read the very last part. It's about Iranian Americans and the everyday politics of race. But I think that is, you know, the sort of closest example. And she does an amazing job through sort of 
interviews with her community and it's very much situated in the present, but it goes into the depths of how even our court, our court case, USB Katsosian, shaped how Iranian people are perceived in the US today. Um, because these things are connected, such a broad way of, you know, sort of declaring an entire group white by law. What are the implications of that in general? So in USB Katsosian, it took place in 1925. It took place in Oregon, actually. And I'm pretty sure you could go, you know, so into detail and read this. I think their family had a sort of rug industry. Um, and the daughter was very avid in, you know, advocating for Armenians at the time. But when it got to the court, it was this way of sort of performing whiteness and saying, you know, we speak English. And this is also during the Americanization period. If we want to call it that, but we speak English, you know, we are good Americans because of these sort of things. We are from the Caucasus, therefore Caucasian. I'm sure that worked out for them too. No, 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 exactly. That had everything to do with it. And, you know, it's crazy reading it back now from the present. You can see that so very clearly in the conversations that pop up on Twitter every month, that that logic is exactly what happens. So I was going to say, I actually have USB Cosposium. Look at this. Right here. Wow. Um, what is this book? This is, this is the whole case? April 5th, 1924. This is the sort of written record of this whole testimony. Oh. And I actually didn't even look too deeply into it until this year when I realized I was able to have it and, like, get, you know, access to the written record but i will say this this sounds like twitter right here <laughs> because it's really just non-armenians going back and forth and specifically what they call like anthropologists quote unquote but they're really like a lot of the racial scientists scientific racism don't forget that yeah. it's not a not a valid thing mm-hmm. eugenicists that we're going on about, you know, have Armenians intermarried, have Armenians assimilated, are they like us? And I'm, I'm summing it up, but that really is at the core of this case. Yeah. Oh, I just opened. As the terms white and white persons are commonly and popularly, popularly used in the United States and Canada, would you class the Armenians, in your opinion, as white persons? And that was a question asked by a non-Armenian or a white man. To another white man for his sort of scientific you know opinion he's probably just looking at the guy he's like thinking exactly hmm, i wonder and there was no basis of this you know scientific racism except for that it was racist um no joke i want to say one more thing about this case that this is crazy so have you ever heard um i'll say it is a myth first of all the myth that we originated in Europe. <laughs> the wait, what? Say it again. <laughs> so, basically, I've seen Armenians say this very casually. So instead of you know the truth that we are indigenous to you know where we come from, we're originally from Europe, the Armenian Highlands. So during this time period, um, a lot of these anthropologists put forth. I think it was actually an older theory from, you know, sort of antiquity, but it is 
for example, it has now been disproved, not only by our medium sources, but also by genetics and our, you know, all of our oral histories and our testimonies and archaeology, for example, that's yeah. been a, something that indigenous people have to rely on because people, you know, won't really believe us, whatever yeah. we say. But this whole case was basically founded on this myth that we originated in Europe and like the Caucasian people originated there and migrated and eventually settled in what is now Yo, that region. This is where what we I'm come saying. From. They have like for the last <laughs> hundred years, salt. we've learned so much more. And the fact that they're making all these like really concrete, like uh, decisions Ugh. based on what's uh, their very weak science. Yeah. Um, yeah. Noah, I mean, I was thinking maybe it's connected to the Indo-European factor of it all, like the language, maybe they're trying to connect it that way, but who mm. knows, maybe the, the Lord, anyways, uh, it's, uh, if anyone brings that up today, it's most likely them trying to get at some sort of, I don't know, uh, white supremacist kind of like angle, so luckily that's not mm. a very relevant thing, I, I haven't really heard that too much today anymore, but what I, I was going to say earlier is, uh, you know, my grandpa was the darker one of the family and his brother was lighter. And, you know, this is in the mm. 40s and 50s or 30s, 40s, let's say 10 years after these cases. And he wouldn't be let into the, the pools, you know, like his brother could go into the public pool, but my grandpa couldn't. And mm-hmm. um, according to my grandparents back in East L.A., uh, Armenians weren't allowed in, to live in certain areas that we had some sort of redlining too, right, where they had to right. live in Boyle Heights. They couldn't do certain occupations. I know in the Fresno Armenians were limited to agriculture. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, my family, the LA Armenians at that time, were limited to the rubbish industry. Yeah, and I think it's a lot of this is, of course, I mean, everything is connected, right? And so a lot of what we talk about um, is intersectional, especially when we zoom out. And so, Kohar, I wanted to ask if you can explain how both Armenians and other minorities benefited greatly from the civil rights movement as it as it was, and civil rights legislation as well. Or minorities right. in general as a whole. And yeah. I'd actually be interested in a native twist, like an uh, angle as well. Yeah. 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 Well, right. I think um, the civil rights movement, for example, is often, again, a period that has since been overwritten. You know, we'll still see those black and white pictures as if it wasn't within this generation that is still very much alive. Um, and the sort of, again, friendly encounter, very peaceful encounter. But now this is a very revolutionary, radical time, very much like one we are living in right now, I would say, yeah. um, where you don't, you not only had um, the civil rights movement when it came to the sort of more peaceful, accommodationist, ideologies of Martin Luther King, which is often the face of this movement. But then you had the more radical Black uh, Black Panther movement and Black Power movement, uh, Black Panther Party, I meant. Mm -hmm. Um, But you also had the Asian American movement, uh, American Indian movement, AIM, Mm -hmm. and the Chicano movement. This was the critical time um, for the formation of ethnic studies, what we call ethnic studies today, or, you know, critical race theory. Yeah. It was born out of activism during this time period, during uh, the late 20th century, where people were organizing on the ground to be like, we aren't represented in the classroom. We aren't represented, you know, really anywhere. We want to sort of represent ourselves on our own terms. Um, yeah. And as a result, you had the, the formation of many different departments 
African American studies, Native American studies, Asian American studies, um, and you know, Latin American studies, for example, during this time period in this late period. Um, and I've been thinking about how, again, uh, sauna activism is often alighted and erased from those conversations. And I don't think it wasn't happening. I just don't think it's really represented and we don't really have too much of a written record of that other than our oral histories. But I do think we have definitely learned so much from black and indigenous activism in this country mm -hmm. that has been, you know, playing out since its foundation, since its very racist foundation, you know, black and native people have never stopped resisting to survive, you know, fighting for their survival, fighting for our survival because we're, you know, existing here today yeah. um, and building this country. Um, but yeah, I definitely, you know, hi, guys, we were actually talking about earlier. Yeah. I think it has, it really changed the conversation from this assimilate, assimilation basis, not saying those logics de uh, don't still exist because yeah. I think they it, it definitely does, yeah. still do and they're definitely still the norm. But I think in the 90s, we entered this sort of period of multiculturalism yeah. that is still often masked as a sort of colorblind period. But I think it allowed us to sort of come here and being, be able to openly embrace our roots. Yeah, um, I agree. Our families, for example. Yeah. Yeah, no, I personally believe what the African-Americans did uh, for their own rights uh, really ended up helping everybody who wanted to uh, be on equal footing with the white man or being, uh, you know, wanting to retain their heritage and not feeling discriminated because their name might be different or their religion is different or all these things. And the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act also benefited, what it did also benefited other groups as well. And so I think there's definitely d direct and indirect connections there, you know, and we have a lot to uh, be appreciative of, of all those activists back then. Um, yeah. Right, like shutting down that, shutting down the freeway, that's not that's that's a thing that black right. activists have done did this year have done many different times and sort of i think we've learned a lot not that armenians have not been protesting because that's one thing armenians are and i've been watching a lot of the videos we're so good at protesting and gathering and just showing up um but i think like a lot of the um methods of protest whether it's blocking the freeway and like disrupting different spaces. I think we, we obviously take a lot from black radicalism. Right. Well, let me ask you this then. I was thinking about this the other day. Now there's videos of the Armenians, you know, protesting on the freeway, protesting here and there. Now let's switch the Armenians with an African-American group or another group. Would the police have been acted the same way with the Armenians and or mm. than they do with the African Americans? Like I, I was there. Like in my head, I'm like, mm -hmm. this might be part of that privilege that we have. Yes. That you know, they right. they see us as a lot less uh, of a. They're not less afraid of us or whatever. They're you know we, they see us as less of a, uh, of a danger. Right. So they're willing to let us block the freeway or do this or that. Meanwhile, I'm thinking back to Ju June and July with the BLM mm -hmm. uh, protests and even though they were peaceful off the bat, they were like met with hostility or, you know, with SWAT teams. So the, absolutely. Yeah, that's white privilege speaking. Like that's exactly yeah, what we're talking yeah. about or not necessarily white privilege, but you know, that is a privilege to not there's a difference have there. to yeah. deal with that police brutality and not saying that, you know, we don't in different cases, I don't want to make a blanket statement, of course. 
but again, it's that is a, a, a very important specificity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on on that note, you know, as a people, you know, Armenians as a people with such a tragic history, time and time again. I mean, I, I was thinking about it the other day. Even our songs, so many of them are so beautifully mm-hmm. tragic. Yeah. Um, because it's because we understand what it's like to struggle and what it's like to struggle in pursuit of justice, fighting against assimilation, and to be driven by that cause over the years. Um, and I just, I don't understand why or how some Armenians can choose not to support black justice or other causes. I don't, I, I can't absorb it. Why do you think some Armenians don't see themselves as, as maybe allies to others? Why is solidarity not, you know, a given? Right. I have those same confusions, but I think I often, it, it, it's very much, it very much has to do with the conversations we had when it comes to legal whiteness and that history that we've inherited and all those ideologies. Um, and it, uh, and it's, it's, you know, many different things, but, um, for example, I think we've internalized a lot of white supremacy. I've been thinking about this too. Not only that, but I think we've internalized, um, you know, Turkish supremacy as well. If I could say that, you know, it's kind of controversial. But I, when I heard when I when I hear some rhetoric about how Armenian people who have no connection to what is now Turkey how they talk about, you know, Turkey. I think we often forget that there are still so many Armenians that live there that are hidden and aren't safe to really be as they are. I realize that that is an outcome of the genocide and all of those pan-Turkic ideologies that we were also forced to assimilate into for centuries, um, obviously culminating in the genocide. I just feel like it's a combination of so many things. What advice would you give to Armenians then in terms of like proper allyship or, um, you know, how should we go about uh, you mm. know, creating connections with these communities in terms of on their like activism, on terms of their activism? Um, it shouldn't be transactional, right? We shouldn't be going in with the thought that I'm going to do this because I want something back. Would you say it should right. be unconditional or with conditions that tends to be a theme that comes up. Right, exactly. Um, I don't think activism is as hard as we make it out to be, or, you know, these inter-ethnic, interracial um, solidarity networks or coalitions. I think the most successful ones are rooted in friendship. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's one thing I've definitely realized, you know, it's through true. the years. We make it, or I think we like to talk about it, you know, in these very abstract, you know, complex ways. Not saying it's not complex and, you know, I, I know not a complex thing. But at the same time, if you have friends and you go out of your way to really learn about where someone comes from and you take the time to open yourself up to these experiences, and really just care for others, I don't think it's as hard as we make it to be. And people just overwrite that to be like, you know, we're, we're on our own. But I'm like, meanwhile, people that are actually, there are so many of us that are actually 
friends with so many different groups and we are actively and obviously me as you know a mixed race person being black indigenous and armenian i understand the necessity of you know these coalitions or these friendships no that's a great yeah. way of putting the i mean it's i was like just care it's pretty <laughs> straightforward right at the end of the day it's just a lot of us vulnerable against these long-lasting structures right and so I don't know. In, in in my it almost seems impossible. You mean like these these like t- these big uh, pro, uh s- the, the structures institutions that are too big to break and they they feel big. They yeah. feel they feel. I mean they are. But I mean yeah. I bring that up to say like all of us are against those structures, and that's why I you know hope and dream about you know solidarity for for anyone that faces any level of oppression. You know because we all understand to some degree what that feels what that feels like and if you've experienced it you know then you should want betterment for not only yourself but for anyone that's experienced that same degree or any degree of that same feeling every time i i mean i always talked about armenia in middle school and high school my poor teachers and friends but um (laughs) but i always made an effort to uh learn how to say hello how are you in their language whoever i met whether it was uh, uh pesto or uh spanish or whatever um because I knew what it would make me feel like if they said pare vinspeses, you know, mm-hmm. that would make me so happy. So I was like, you know, I'm going to learn theirs. And then maybe from me showing interest in their background, they would get interested in my background. So uh, mm. it was, a, I right. w- and that's the friendships I've been making over the last few years is by me ingraining in their community and getting involved and in learning about them, it, it does reciprocate or but maybe it's based off of the fact that you've become good friends at this point and uh, you've accepted their backgrounds. Yeah, I mean, someone asked me the other day, like, why is activism important? And I literally, I just said, if you care about people, then you should care about activism because that's that's what it is. It's right. just really caring about people and using any sense of agency or in different ways to help them. Like, I, don't I, know, I, exactly. I would recommend, I mean, not many of us Armenians live in areas where, you know, we do go to a public school and we don't have many Armenian friends in our area. So off the bat, they're exposed to the, the greater communities around us. But there's a lot of Armenians that will also withhold on, um, you know, uh, staying in, they'll stay in their bubbles. Yeah. It's a disservice to ourselves, but to each other, because our histories are always relational our histories and our current realities are always relational they're always connected yeah they don't exist in vacuums Mm -hmm. um and our job is to just sort of fill in and sort of understand how they all connect and then bridge on the basis of our similarities and sort of build these networks across our differences and that is really you know sort of the root of people that study race relationally or um, very much understand that things are intersectional at their core because if not you know that's just not how life works yeah race is global and intersectional at its core because it was made to be that way um and i think you know for example if we're going to bring up ethnic studies and that formation and how that's connected to the civil rights movement everything is always already related. So mm. by pretending that, you know, or putting on these narrow goggles and thinking that we only have ourselves, I personally, I don't think that serves anyone well. Yeah. <laughs> True. 
I mean, I would always, uh, my argument for why, when my friends would ask, why do you care about the Armenian genocide or why is that relevant to us? I'd say, you know, we're, if we can achieve our justice, it's a format or a model for everyone to achieve their justice, you know? Fighting for one person's justice is fighting for your own justice. Well, no, absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Well, um, right. Kohad, uh, may I also say? Yeah, go for it. The eradication of all the injustices against Black and Indigenous women would require the liberation of all because, you know, this country was built on our dispossession. So in order to sort of grant us that freedom, that would require everyone to be free because, you know, this hierarchy was sort of formed on top of us. Um, For sure. Yeah, a rendition of that quote, but to say Black and Indigenous liberation is at the root of all, and it has to be. Because it's a global system here. No, it's true. And if we can, like, achieve it here uh, with our African-American and Native American brothers and sisters, we can then take that model to Turkey whenever, you know, the genocide gets Mm -hmm. recognized and we try to, like, figure it out there with them. Which is why 105 years later we still talk about the Armenian genocide because, as you said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And that's why we raise awareness in hopes of also preventing um, these things from occurring. Kohar, thank you so much for joining us today and chatting with us. Yeah, this was great. Yeah. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> no, of course. And, uh, you know, good luck at school and everything. <laughs> Thanks, I need it. <laughs> Zoom University. Yes, and we can't wait to have you back hopefully soon. Yes. Oh, thank you. <laughs> we live in a world shaped by European society. As a result of their extensive conquests and colonizations, Our world is shaped through the European lens of economics, sciences, as well as their notions and theories about people and race and history, which were institutionalized. And even though much of it's grossly inaccurate, the perceptions and constructs we experience about people who look different than us, especially in the West, come from this small corner of the world's ideas of white superiority and power. The blanket statement that Armenians are white is problematic. There are advantages and there's privilege to being white passing, of course. But the truth is, the Armenian story and experience has little to do with European imperialism and the power of being quote-unquote white. Having just survived a genocide, many of us had to accommodate our identities to be acceptable to Western standards in order to seek refuge and start a new life. Being predominantly Christian helped with conforming in the mostly Christian West, but That very same cultural characteristic is why we were brutally persecuted and forced to leave in the first place. The answer is not simple, and it demands context. But if Armenians are quote-unquote white, are Arabs, Iranians, and all Swana people also white, we all answer the census the same way. Let's decolonize our minds. Ask yourself, is this perception of myself or the other based on a racist scientist 200 years ago who knew nothing about Armenians or about themselves for that matter? The difficulty of trying to categorize ethnic groups from our part of the world where every color and religion and type of person exists only proves the inherent complexity of identity. It's too complex for the arbitrary classification made by those very same racist European scientists from 200 years ago. So I hope this show will help our community add more context to these conversations. And I agree with Kohat that instead of trying to fit ourselves in these arbitrary and flawed categories, the conversation should shift to who's upholding and creating these systems that incorporate these consequential racial categorizations. 
Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Haituk Talks, the official podcast of the AYF West. I'm Krista Marina Apardian. And I'm Haik Minasian. And we're just a couple of Armenians. Talking in the world. A couple of Armenians talking in the world.